Welcome to Prussian Socialism, bringing you culture, whether you like it or not. Today's topic is the Old English poem, Old English epic poem, Beowulf. And I'm here with Roman, or uh, Romanized Visigoth, to give you your, your full name, with whom uh, I discussed Faust a couple episodes ago. So, you know, we we're going to break with tradition here and talk about something from English literature. I know we've We've been staunchly pro-German and uh, pro-Italian and, uh, you know, other peoples of Europe, and we've intentionally ignored the English much to uh, their anger. But now we're going to talk about the English, and I think it's only appropriate that we pick the most archaic and the most Germanic English poem to talk about to give to put the English in their best light. So I love Beowulf. I studied it first or I read it first when I was in eighth and ninth grade. Not for school, because in school we just read uh, black books and Holocaust books. But uh, I, I was, you know, I used to go to the bookstore a lot as a kid and I wondered about this Beowulf. Like I knew it was the oldest work of English literature and uh, I knew it was from the Middle Ages and I loved the Romans. And so I started trying to, to read it and I got this version translated by a certain a scholar named Howell D. Chickering. And this is maybe from the 1980s and it's got Old English on the one side and the modern English translation on the other side of the facing page. And it also has the great advantage of having a very long introduction with information about the poetic form and about the historical context and about the characters. And then it also has a good long hundred pages or so of explanation about the poem and about the each episode kind of analyzed piece by piece. So what struck me about this, though, reading it as like a 14 year old, it was like the best poetry I'd ever encountered. I'd, I, When I was a really little kid, I hated poetry because it just sounds stupid. Poetry you hear growing up is usually like that rhymed claptrap in English. And so reading for the first time poetry that wasn't rhymed and that was alliterative and based on a certain stress pattern was really cool. And then the other thing that's really cool about Beowulf is the cleverness of the words. Like the poet comes up with these compound words to describe things like he calls the sea uh, the ocean he calls it the whale road or the whale ridings the whale's riding place as a way to express the idea of sea or um, he uses a lot of compounds of battle and war uh, and and gives extensive long explanations of military equipment and jewelry and and gold it's very different from anything you would have encountered outside of epic poetry. So that that really turned me on to it. And I think, well, one, one other thing I want to say sort of in this, my introduction to why I like Beowulf and why I think it's such a great thing is it's the sort of poem that you ought to, that every boy ought to read in his teen years. It really should be your first introduction to literature. You know, in sort of the same way that the human organism progresses through all the stages of evolution when it goes from a zygote into a baby. I feel like the man ought to go through the stages of his culture's development. So you don't start off reading, uh, I don't know, Goethe or Shakespeare or let alone some 20th century author, God forbid. You start off reading the really primitive stuff because those are the things that are going to speak to somebody who is not, you know, fully matured yet and developed. And so it's it's really good to read this uh, something like Beowulf because it has this heroic attitude toward it. The whole story is about being eager for fame. It's so shameless. Growing up, I'd always had the 
moral input to me that you should be uh, humble and you should uh, be respectful. But here I'm reading Beowulf and he's open about his desire to have fame and glory and and that that's held up as something that man, a man should do. So I thought that was really cool. So Roman, let's you want to make some comments on on Beowulf just to start off and then we can get into the plot and the characters and then start talking about the history and some of the analysis. Yeah. I wanted to start with before even talking about the themes and stuff like how how people can read this instead of doing that towards the end. Okay. Be- yeah. Because um it is there are a lot of translations and I it's it's not easy or it's not difficult to just grab this with no and not know how to read it and to maybe not get the most out of it. So I know you said that you read the author Ch- that you just Chikorin. Yeah. yeah. And you also read Shemus Heaney's. Yeah, I listened more... I listened to the Shemus Heaney one on YouTube which is Shimasini is a more recent translation. It's from like, I don't know, 20 years ago or so. And it's, and so Beowulf was, was, was written about composed in its final form, probably around 800 or so roughly. And with these epic poems, nobody really knows. Um, and they, they have to date it based on linguistic grounds and some of the references and things like that. But you'll hear boomers. I've heard several boomers throughout my life tell me that they read Beowulf in high school in old English. And it's like, bullshit, bullshit. You did not. That's like saying, oh, yeah, I read I read Mein Kampf in German just casually. It's like, no, you didn't. The language is way too different. You did not read it in Old English. I suspect a lot of these boomers read it in like an archaic translation and they think that that's Old English. But Old English might as the difference between modern English and Old English is the difference between modern English and German. I mean, for all intents and purposes, Mm -hmm. the, the phonology, the grammar, the syntax, like everything is very different. But uh, so like you're saying, it's it's hard to get into unless you have a good translation and unless you or unless you know what you want out of a translation, because there are a lot of there are a lot of good translations. And I mean, as far as I will say, the the Heaney version is the most probably famous and well-liked translation nowadays. And it's the it's the book that you've probably maybe have seen it in a used bookstore or something. It's the book that has a, a chainmail covered head on the front. Heaney is great because he makes an effort to reproduce the alliterative verse of Old English. And so his uh, translation comes across as very polished. It works, I think. The way I think of Heaney is his translation is a translation or a a re-rendering of Beowulf for a modern, cosmopolitan, highly educated audience. And so it gives you a a flavor uh, of what Beowulf would have been. However, it, he uses a lot of like high level words and not even just high level words, but um, words that aren't necessarily appropriate. There's one passage toward the end. I think it's when it's after Beowulf has had the fight with Grendel's mother and he's receiving gifts from Wailtheow, the queen of the Danes, and it's talking about necklaces and the words that he uses for necklace he uses necklace and then he says torque. And he says Gorget. And these last two words, torque and Gorget, I doubt most English speakers have ever heard them before. They're technical words that are really only used in certain contexts contexts, and they like don't armor, really mean right? they don't really mean necklace either. Yeah, a Gorget is a throat protector yeah, for protector your armor. For... Or if you've seen maybe in like old movies or in, in like World War II movies, like the German gendarmes or the field police, 
have a this piece of metal or uh, hanging around a chain around their neck. That's called a gorget. Like British Army used to use it too. It's like a badge of rank or a technical troop type. But yeah, it's, I knew this what isn't it was because uh, I I played Ultima online and you have to fully equip your guy uh, with uh, with uh-huh. that for the armor rating. Well, so. it's, it's not something you're gonna know, and it, it also just doesn't mean necklace. Uh, and you, the other word is torque, which is a word for if you, you probably I think you'd only encounter this word if you're reading about Celtic archaeology, because torque is like a ring that hangs around your neck. So, I mean, Heaney is using words like that because he needs to get the alliteration in the line. But it. It's different from the original poem, because the original poem would be something that a everyday Anglo-Saxon could understand. Now, granted, there are still poetic words in Beowulf, but like they are formulaic words that would be sort of known. I mean, he has the poet uses different words for sword, for instance, that wouldn't have been in common use. But but it's not nearly as like from the point of view of vocabulary, Beowulf to the Anglo-Saxon is a lot less complicated than Seamus Heaney to the modern English speaker. Well, they the the poetic terms you were referring to earlier, they're kennings, right? Yeah, like the whale road or the the road. Yeah. So those were probably what happened with this literature is, from what I understand, is those things would build up as a tradition. So like whether it's the the whale road one or um, calling somebody's chest like a bone box or bone, you know, there there would be these. I, I guess they sounded nice poetically. So somebody would use it somebody would invent it and then it would become part of the lexicon. So even if it seems like a high level linguistic term, it would be um, something that lay people would know because they would hear it in. The... Well, yeah, I wasn't ref- I wasn't referring so much to that as regarding like poetic terms. Like I think a lot of those are sort of are self-explanatory. I mean, you have to think about it for a second. But I think, like you said, an Anglo-Saxon would have instantly would have heard bone box or bone box or no, it's the other word for body is a a bone house something like that, you would have those terms you can kind of even if you'd never heard it before are self-explanatory. But I mean, some of the other words like like a sword is often called a hilled bill. Hilled is the word for battle and bill is an art. It's just a poetic word for sword. It's the normal word is like swear. And then uh, there's another word, mecha, which means sword as well, which if I had to guess, I, it looks like the, the Russian word for sword, mech. So I'm, it's probably an, an ancient Indo-European word. But, you know, the, the typical person, I, from what I've read, would know the word swear, but not these some of these other doublets. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think when I was reading some of the commentary, I think sword is the word in the poem that has the most words that mean it. Mm-hmm. Uh, variations. So, yeah, I read the, the Seamus Heaney. I read Tolkien's translation. You mean the Lord of the Rings guy? <laughs> That's that, that, that nerd. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, my my childhood relationship with this was I also didn't know what Old English was. I when I was uh, say eleven or twelve, something like that, like sixth grade maybe. I thought Old English was you know if you go to a store that is uh, like cute and hipster and it says like oldie shoppy, right? I thought that was Old English, like putting e's at like extra letters that we don't use anymore, and. I don't know how I got this idea, but I remember I asked my parents at at the library to get a copy of Beowulf in Old English. I don't know how I heard about this, but the, the librarian printed out 
this is like when the internet was um special to use uh printed out like a, like she opened pdf back when that was a real technical thing and i ended up with this you know the old english version of beowulf and i was like what the fuck is it <laughs> like no i said english so of course i couldn't read it at all and then i i probably ended up reading just some translation and not being too interested but yeah before we move on i want to recommend the tolkien translation for because there's a book it's edited by his son who is uh christopher tolkien who was the steward of the whole lord of the rings all of his father's franchises and his death uh, just a few years ago is i think the direct cause of the show that just came out that is super paused and like black trans elves or dwarves or whatever like really really bad disgusting stuff so oh, i think i yeah i think i saw something about that that's black trans elf yeah okay yeah, really, really awful destruct. I mean, I, you know, the Jews are coming after Tolkien because, yeah, because his son was very much like, so his son uh, compiled because his uh, J.R. Tol- uh, Tolkien never released his translation of Beowulf. Um, he made a couple different translation versions that were cobbled together. So he had like a B copy and an A copy that he made in different decades of his life. Mm-hmm. And so his son went back and compiled all that into what he thought was the best version based on his father's original notes and then had commentary on the translation from his father's notes that he also had to cobble together because his father had commentary from the different translations that he made. And it also includes some original Tolkien stuff. Like he, he writes some alternative poetic versions, the lay of Beowulf and something called Selic spell. It's a good study material if you want to actually understand the uh, translation, but as far as reading, yeah, I think the Shemus Heaney, just for like a quick like reading for enjoyment maybe is or, or good. I, I mean just listening like i will post the youtube version and it's it's only like two and a half hours so you just listen to it in a car ride and it is good if you have a fairly high sat score and <laughs> you are a cosmopolitan swivel but if you are maybe i don't know if I don't know. It's hard to say if like if you handed this to a to like a, a high schooler, would they understand it or would it just be like uh, it would just so much of it would run by them? I don't know. I like the Chickering version, uh, not only because the book is way better and has a lot more information in it, but also because if the translation is a bit more literal and he doesn't have to reach to find dig up like poetic words or words that honestly don't really have aren't in the right time and place. And the other th- cool thing, too, is if you actually do want to examine the Old English, Chickering gives a a section at the back where he scans word by word eight different sections from Beowulf. So a few a few hundred lines he has scanned where it gives you the, the word uh, in Old English, the definition and then like the what t- part of speech it is, what its function is. So it's a noun, what case it's in, if it's a, a verb, what what tense it's in, what person it's in. And so you can like with some with some effort without having ever studied Old English, as long as you have some background in grammar, read the Old English, which I think was really cool. Yeah. Oh, and the last recommendation uh, also on YouTube, Benjamin Bagby, who does Old English readings as performances. And there's at least one video of him doing this someplace in New York City. He reads with a harp 
trying to mimic what this might have actually been like back in 800 or whatever before it was written down. And it's really cool. Yeah, so why don't, why don't you explain some of that, uh, uh, the epic tradition and how this poem came to be composed and, and written down? Yeah, uh, a matter of great debate. Tolkien puts it first. Well, Tolkien, I did not realize this. He was I knew that he was a professor, but he resurrected Beowulf as um, before he discussed it. And he had an essay. Did you read his essay, The Monsters and the Critics? No. So, you know, Beowulf was it was uh, written you know, something like one probably around 1000 or 1100 from material that was probably composed largely a couple hundred years earlier. Right. Similar to, similar to Homer, for instance, or. Was, yeah. Was, and it also there was an oral similar. tradition and then it was written down at a rather late period. Yeah. And about events that proceeded further still. Right. So kind of a three layered thing, like events that turned into history, mythological history for an unlettered people that didn't, you know, strictly write down the their history of their battles and whatnot that turned into an oral history of bards or shopes and then this sort of crystallization that happened probably by a monk so the the actual beowulf poet he's just called the beowulf poet because he's not um credited no no one knows who he is but he was probably an english monk who spoke and wrote Anglo-Saxon. Uh, he probably also knew Latin. And um, yeah, so we do you want to get into the. Well, uh, before we do the history, let's let's give we ought to give a, a overview of the, the poem itself and just the basic plot. So, I mean, the plot is very simple. There is a guy from what's now sort of uh, eastern Sweden called Beowulf and he's a prince and Southern he, he, he hears about a disturbance in Denmark, uh, probably in Zealand. That's the Island where Copenhagen is now. And this disturbance is that there's a monster attacking the hall of King Hrothgar and the, the hall itself is called Herot. And so Hrothgar has this problem that this monster called Grendel keeps attacking his hall and uh, tearing up his thanes, his, his, uh, his knights, his men, and none of his thanes can do anything about it. So because they're just too weak or they're incompetent or some of them are cowardly. So it's well, Grendel is his... impenetrable by weapons magically. Oh, well, there's that too. Yeah. So Grendel is impenetrable to weapons. So Beowulf comes to Herod, the hall, the high hall of King Hrothgar and offers to fight uh, the monster for him, and so there's an exchange of gifts and swearing of oaths and a formal boast, and then Beowulf spends the night. Grendel comes in, Beowulf kills Grendel, uses his bare hands because he can't use a sword. Then uh, there's feasting after that, but then Grendel's mother hears about this, and so Grendel's mother is another monster, creeps out of the, the moor, the moor, the fen, the marshes, and comes to the hall, again attacks it, kills one of Beowulf's men, but Beowulf rallies the others and he fights Grendel's mom, kills her. Oh no, whoa, I'm, no. Grendel's mom comes, attacks the the hall, escapes, then Beowulf rallies the men, 
and goes with the Danes and, and the Geats, and they all go to the lake where Grendel's mother lives. He dives into the lake, fights her, kills her, emerges. And then the that's the first two thirds of the poems. That's the two fights, Grendel and then Grendel's mother. And then there's a final fight 50 years later back in Geatland where Beowulf kills a dragon who is guarding a gold hoard underground. And he has his final fight with the dragon. He's killed by the dragon's fiery breath, but he manages to slay the dragon and and yeah that's the end of it but like interwoven with all of this is also other little uh, historic or quasi-historic episodes so one of them uh for instance toward the end uh like lines two it's about three thousand it's a three thousand one hundred eighty two line poem somewhere around line two thousand four hundred there's a 50 line digression about a raid by the ancient Swedes, they were the ancient Geats, I should say, on the continent of Europe. So it's Beowulf's king, his old king, Hugolak, who leads a, a raid into Frisia and is defeated by the Frisians and the Franks and then has to flee. And Hugolak, the king, is killed and Beowulf fights them off. And this is it's interesting because this is the scholars think that this is a historic episode that actually happened and it's relatable to an incident or an incident in Gregory of Tours history of the Franks that happened in 521. So there's like lots and this is one one little thing I can say, but there's lots of historical references and things that are deep traced deep into the Dark Ages that can sort of be touched and 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 known. Uh, in that regard, it's a lot like the Nibelungen lead, but uh, I don't want to go go too far with that. Roman, why don't you just give me a since you know a good bit about the North here, give me some idea about the overall political milieu from which Beowulf and Hugolak and Hrothgar uh, uh, come. Yeah. So in this time, imagine on the map, you've got this whole thing doesn't really concern Norway. So just think of what's currently Sweden and what's currently Denmark. And although these days, you know, Norway and Sweden, I guess, are considered more related to each other. But, you know, back a long time ago, you always have to remember that land travel was always more difficult than sea travel and communication before, like, you know, the 1800s everywhere. So the, the western coast of Sweden, of southern Sweden, is actually extremely close to the northern coasts and the eastern coasts right of, there's a there's a bridge nowadays from yeah. malmo to copenhagen so yes so uh in other words there would be more interaction between western and southern swedes and northern and eastern danes than between swedes and norwegians or swedes and Finns, or even between people in have i shouldn't even say swedes because they they weren't swedes they were geats but uh, even between people that inhabit what is now modern southern and western Sweden and people that inhabited what is now eastern and northern Sweden. Because right, now, the I'll la- point out, too, that that's reflected in the languages, because if you look at the Nordic languages, the, the split, the primary split is not between like north and south. It's east west. So east Nordic is Danish and Swedish, which have, you know, so those two have more commonalities than norwegian icelandic you got 
Danish Swedish on one hand, and then Icelandic and Nor Norwegian on the other. Now that's sort of obvious or obscured by the amount of influence that Danish has had over Norwegian in centuries since. But if you just look at like the the lowest lying linguistic split, it's it's east west. So it is there is that relation between the Swedes and the Danes that you don't really have as much with the Norwegians or the Icelanders. Right. So at this time, this area that's now referred to as Jotland or southern Sweden which includes Gothenburg, and then at the very southern part, what's now Karlskrona, which probably wasn't even a town then. That's Geatland, and that's where Beowulf came from, and he was supposedly the nephew of Hugelac, right? Uh-huh. Who is known... Yeah, I also read that about Gregory of Tours, and uh, they called him what, Hugelacus or something. And yeah. I believe when they slay, slayed him... They brought they displayed his body because he was like the largest person because his name. So, is yeah, more more like huge, huge. Alive. Yeah. God, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there, there's there there are a few uh, Tolkien mentions this. There's a few nods to an almost mythical man beast type connection, like with huge Alak and that maybe Beowulf, because there are things that Beowulf does that are not physically possible like swimming uh -huh. for seven days swimming well, his in, grip is the grip of 30 men yeah uh swim diving into a cave where he has to like fight and hold his breath for who knows how many minutes while monsters are attacking him well, in doesn't addition. he i doesn't he swim down for a day and then he gets i thought it was a he swims for like a day and then he gets to the the hole in the ground where grendel's mother is or the cave but the way it's described it's He's like coming up into a it's like a bubble underground. Yeah. So it's he's fighting her. In I don't air. think he swims down for a whole day. Yeah, maybe I, I misread he, that. He gets in the water and he's not. We're kind of jumping the gun, but I, I think he's attacked by monsters and he's dragged down mm -hmm. and he's slaying monsters while he's being dragged down. And then he emerges and Beowulf's mom is trying to grab him and he like pushes her away and then emerges into her grotto that's underwater yeah area that's um dry so the very beginning of the poem it, it lays out the actually a foundation the foundational lineage which is partly partly mythological and partly historical of the danes or the shield danes or the shieldings mm -hmm. and i forget is beowulf blood related to hrothgar i'm pretty sure no but there is a connection in that Hrothgar knows who Beowulf is because he knows about Beowulf's father, Edgethel. I think I think the connection is because th this is very understated, but I had to read a lot of commentary to get. That's another thing. When you read through this, if you want to read, like I was saying with the Shimasini, there you can read it for enjoyment, but then there is a lot of stuff that you just will not pick up on. Which, for example. Beowulf is there for glory, but he also has a bit of a debt to Hrothgar because Hrothgar paid a blood price, a gold death price for Beowulf's father, I think. So back then, if okay. you slayed somebody, even in a war, and it was, I guess, a noble person, you know, this probably wasn't the same for peasants, but a thane, if you killed a thane in battle of another tribe, it could start a vendetta. And then they would have to avenge themselves, and then that could turn into because at, at the time of this poem the swedes which would be in like present day stockholm area 
had a, a big vendetta with the Geats in southern Sweden. And so the Geats were more allied to the Danes, or and they wanted to maintain that alliance. And Hrothgar had paid, Beowulf's father had killed somebody, I forget who, and Hrothgar had paid the blood price so that there would be no vendetta. Oh, okay. So Hrothgar's lineage, he's the son of Helfdane, or right. the grandson of Helfdane, who that's the first real person in the lineage. And then it goes back to another Beowulf, which was probably Baal in the original manuscript, and then Shield Schaefing, who is. Uh, did you read it all about like the whole the the corn mythology? Uh, I saw something that Shield Schaefing, yeah. Um, well, I was I was gonna say I didn't the relation of of uh, Beowulf to to Hrothgar. It's there is like a they they know each other just be, because of this these things that have happened in the past, but what's as far as like you as the reader are concerned, how do you get into this? You have to remember that the Anglo-Saxon listening to this poem would like have heard these stories growing up in, in different forms and would have heard them as like just folk tales and stories. And so he would know all the characters already as he's listening to it. So he wouldn't have to rely on commentary. And I, I feel like that's the best way to, to really like approach the poem is to, familiarize yourself like just read wikipedia articles about like the different characters and about the the background and the history of uh, scandinavia and like the 500s and then from there once you already know who the characters are then you can get into it because if you just come into the poem uh like most people do and you're like oh hrothgar who's that oh harat oh wait who is that oh wait no that's the name of the hall well, the other thing too about these damn nords back then is they all rather than giving each other a last name like normal people do the way that they worked with the family is that everybody within one family had had names that alliterated with p- other people in the family. So Hrothgar, Halfdane, or Halfdane, they would it was typical to align a family that way, where everybody has a name based on the same first letter, or based on a, a common element. So like uh, you have Hildebrand and Hildegard, or like something like that. So it actually is is in a way that makes it more confusing because you're not looking for that uh, unless you know unless you know these conventions that have been lost for a thousand or fifteen hundred years. Yes. So yeah, so the Shield Schaefing, that name is basically just a reference to the sheafs of wheat, wheat corn being brought. Okay. So he would he came in a kind of Moses motif in a boat, you know, like a an orphan in a basket. And yeah, was, not, not, let's 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 be precise here. Moses was not the that was uh, Sargon of Akkad was <laughs> no true. This was the one who that who did that first. Moses is the knockoff. Right. Well, yes, that's to be expected of that particular authorship. Yes, the Juifs. <laughs> uh, so he's found by the Danes and he ha- in his boat are precious things and and uh so back then everything until i don't know when they started naming things anything other than corn because corn used to just be the name for grain so they're like wheat corn barley corn so there was you know different types of corn so hrothgar's mythical lineage which is very common in classical pagan literature uh all the way back to the greeks probably before then you would have a family lineage and at some point it would get hazy because you would worship because their religions were ancestor worship and everybody's especially if you were any kind of 
aristocracy, you would have a lineage that blended into mythology and eventually it would go back to like Hercules. And for, you know, for the, or, for the or Venus or something. Yeah. Caesar yeah. 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 Of Venus. And so they did the same thing here. So these Danes, the Royal Danes, at least had a lineage that went back to the mythical king that brought grain to Denmark. And you know, well, why is that important? Well, whoever brought grain wherever that allowed for civilization and for to support a population that could have like an army, you know, no more hunter gathering, but actual buildings and conquests and stuff like that and then his son was baal which means barley i think so so the mythical lineage has to do with wheat and barley corn okay that's interesting i mean there are i know there are multiple there are different theories on the uh word derivation of beowulf i hadn't heard that one the two commonest ones are that beowulf comes from the old english word for bee wolf which i find just on, I mean, it, that's well, apparently fairly well supported from the linguistic point of view, but I find that a little bit uh, hard to believe. It just doesn't like, why would you name, some, name somebody Beowulf? Doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. The other one that I think seems to make a little bit more sense just on the surface is um, the idea that it comes from Beidul Wolf, because Beidul is the old English word for battle, or one of one of many words for battle. Uh, and you can hear you can hear in the word Beidul that it's probably connected with the modern English beat um, because all words in English that are EA go back to an older form that would be pronounced a. So beat used to be pronounced bait. So bait to bedu, not much, that much of a stretch. I mean, like in German, the word for beat schlagen is, is uh, the derivation of the word schlacht, which is battle. So you like, you can see the connection there. So bedu wolf battle wolf. That actually sounds like a, like a name. I mean, there's a number of other ones. There's a whole, a whole literature of theories on where Beowulf comes from. But I mean, I guess in defense of the bee idea, bees are special in Indo-European mythology because they make honey and from honey you get mead and mead mm. is the drink of heroes. So, so we can jump forward actually. So Hrothgar is descended from these Kings that raised up the Danish hunter gatherers into a people. That this is, I mean, I've never heard this before. This is interesting. Where do you, which is this from one scholar you're getting this? A lot of this is in Tolkien's commentary. Unfortunately, I also read and listened to probably, I mean, because we talked about doing this podcast over a month ago. Mm -hmm. I've probably listened to a dozen lectures uh, and read this stuff. So I'm, I can't say exactly where all these Yeah, you're just swim, swimming in information. All right. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I listened to a YouTube video where a guy was doing computational lexomics on Beowulf to to demonstrate like when it was written like high level academic modern research techniques so that that's when I got a little lost in the sauce but earlier than that I was just listening to straight up and down lectures and reading um, transcripts of lectures from you know people that are probably still lecturing at various colleges on uh, the linguistics of it the poetry of it uh, and this the actual linkages to the verifiable history and to mythology like the mm. corn mythology and right, so, um so yeah well as you were saying about schuld Scheffing bringing this bringing corn to denmark right so and then he you know in the very beginning they're talking about he um he let's see i, I know i have a version open to the beginning here 
Yeah. Well, you know, the uh, should should we re- should one of us read some of the first lines in in uh, old English and then modern and just kind of explain? Well, I don't want to embarrass myself. My my lack of knowledge on old English uh, phonetics. Um. All right. I I'll 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 do. Okay. Some of it. Yeah. You you do it. I'll correct you. Okay. So, uh, it, the poem starts off out of meter with uh, a word "hwat," which is like low or listen up, something like that. Hwat, we gardenia and yardegum theed kuninga frem yefrunan, who the athalingus elen fremedon. And so that means, you know, low praise to the prowess of the i'm i'm actually right now i'm reading from bilingual beowulf which is an mit because it has the it has the old it has a old english in a column next to the modern the people kings of spear-armed danes in days long sped we have heard and what honor the athelings won uh continuing oft shield chafing sheathena freatum monegum manathum meo du dea Eoseda erles sudden eres worth fairschaft funden. Let me let me give that a try. Oft shield chefing shedna threatum monegum magthum meldo setla ofteaf exod erlas sidan eres worth fairschaft funden. Okay, so that means I know that's not that's not great, but so that's of oft or of shield shape chafing yeah uh, often yeah often shield yeah. chafing from squandered foes from many a tribe the mead bench tore awing the earls since erst he lay friendless a foundling fate repaid him um i think that's the end of that but that's going into the next so it's speaking of this this guy who was who showed up and started um setting things up uh, in in Denmark so then it goes on hevas profre yabad wax weax under volknum weof mendum fach otta him auwich thara im setendra over hrunda huren shoulder gumban gildan and then my favorite line like i said before that was good kuning, uh, All right. which means he uh, he was a good king. That was he was a good king. So since Ercile, friendless a foundling, fate repaid him for he waxed under. This is a weird translation. Uh, in wealth he throve till before him the folk both far and near, who housed by the whale path, heard his mandate, give gave him gifts. A good king he. So this is laying out in this uh, the lineage of Hrothgar, who's now more or less the greatest king in the area how this was set up is this baby showed up and became the first king of the danes and he set up basically what the scandinavians fought over for the following uh 1500 or so years which is trade across the baltic you know from the baltic on the east side and then into the west side you know towards the atlantic between southern Sweden and Denmark, um, that that at all the way into semi-modern times, the different powers, uh, and then eventually Poland and the what are they called? Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, 
yeah the, uh, those oh, countries yeah yeah that they, they all tried to control that water um for for the trade so so it's talking about taking taxes basically from all of the civilizations that were springing about in those waters i'll just point out real quick on some of these words like in that very first part there's some words like shayadana which means warriors some of these words still exist in modern english they've just been reduced to a very uh small usage so shayadana is the is the ancestor of our english word scathing um, which we only use for you know very limited use, but it comes from this old word that had a broader use. And it's funny that that translate. Oh, the other thing I was going to say is that funny that that translation that you just read gave Adlingas as just adling adlings princes. Yeah. But this is similar. I mean, if you know uh, German, a lot of these words will just jump out at you. It's like, oh, Adlingas, like Adel. Oh, that's like like Adel, like Edelweiss, noble noble white or Adolf, noble wolf, right? So it's that that same Germanic element in it that yeah, it's just lost in modern English. We don't have this Edel, Ethel. I guess maybe in the name like Ethel is is from that old root that meant noble. Yeah, I'm looking at, at the translation. Yeah, it just says nobleman, prince, princes. Yeah, Ethelingas. So Prothgar is descendant of these kings, and they've just continued to build up their kingdom there on what's now northern denmark and then he goes you know what would be great is a mead hall because basically the the economy that exists at this time is you have a tribe so there's not really nation states i I don't it's a frat house based economy you know you you gotta (laughs) you build the the drinking hall and you protect it and everyone is able to get wasted on mead and they, I mean, really, the, it's a it's a it's a drinking centered economy is the impression I got. Also, it's centered on well, it's centered on um, peasant farming, raiding, which is I mean, I guess you could say external trade and raiding, which I'm not even sure they see. As yeah, like what's, totally you know, what's distinct. The, right. Yeah. <laughs> like we take it, you give it, you know, we give you something <laughs> for it. Maybe we don't. Maybe we just take it. So we give you way, protection. So the, the, the king is over the thanes, and the thanes will fight for the king. But the king has to be able to provide things like a mead hall, so a safe place for them to party. Mm-hmm. And he, and it's kind of a mafia-esque because oh, yeah. they're bringing raid – either he goes on the raiding missions and leads them or not all of them, you know, whatever. And they're, they, they're bringing back treasure to him, and then he distributes it. What's what's inter- it's it's interesting because you see in this like the most fundamental things about society building and it's not even what you what you think it is. Maybe in modern times you think it's it's something to do with money or social structure or something. I mean, it, it's all there. But like what it comes down to, it's most distilled uh, core is. Loyalty and ensuring loyalty by giving gifts and proving loyalty by accepting the gift and then doing the hard work or the, the 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 dangerous work to protect your king and protect what belongs to him so it's very they're actually mostly concerned with rewards and not even punishments just rewards for uh doing good work and that the entire like social system is based on that and the honor that you receive from doing good work or brave work 
uh, and the reprimand that you should receive, the disgrace it is to fail to do that, uh, to die for your Lord or to serve him or to fight in battle with him. Yeah, I actually had a later note that 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 touches on, which is there's nothing anti-Semitic in Beowulf because Semitism is simply absent. There's no economy of like words and money lending or the, the economy is purely physical objects, loyalty, strength, bravery. It's like any anything that. Uh, just subtract anything that Jews use or like from the world and what's right, left over. Jew-free literature. Yes. So it's like uh, it's not anti-Semitic or kind of, it's just Semitism in absentia. It's there is no Semitism. Yes, it's asemitic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I was I was toying with the idea as I was rereading this. I was like, maybe Grendel is like a Jew. Because Grendel can't be hurt with weapons, and Grendel like comes into their midst and starts destroying the society. I mean, it's in a much more physical and obvious way than a Jew. A Jew would, so it's 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 not really a comparison that that, that holds up. But you know, as a Nazi, I'm always looking for Jews somewhere. And well, speaking, of, did you did you ever read or hear of John Gardner's Grendel? Uh, yes, I've heard the uh, the 1970s like novel that's centered on Grendel, and it's a retelling of Beowulf. That sounds yeah. really Jewish. Is that Jewish? No, I actually happened to ah. read that. I, I looked up Gardner's wiki just today to make sure he is not. He does not seem to be Jewish, but he married. He had a second wife who was Jewish. Is it, it just before. strikes me as a, a Jewish way of treating it to be. I mean, it's clever. But then you're also like, eh, it sounds kind of Jewish. You're going to sympathy for the devil here. Like we're going to have ooh, poor Grendel and Grendel's story about how much resentment Grendel feels for all the happy partying that's going on at the frat house that Grendel can't be a part of. Like, is that I mean, you you read it. So you, you tell me, is that what it is? Yeah, it's bas- basically Grendel is he's like a, he doesn't fit in. He's a he's he's based on Sartre. So he's an existentialist being oh, and, oh, and Sark, nothing Sark, else uh, the, yeah, the, yeah um, wasn't he the guy that wrote about algeria mama died yesterday uh you know what i'm talking about that sartre you, the, the the being and nothingness sartre the the one yeah, that's yeah, with yeah, the yeah, googly I've... eyes right no i mean <laughs> sorry wait who else am i thinking of there's the guy who says uh that stupid story about Algeria, where the Frenchman's in Algeria, and he's like, the sun is really hot, and he kills an Algerian. Oh, Camus, he... Camus. Camus, yeah, duh, okay. These, in 19th century French, 20th century <laughs> Albert French writers, they're all, the, they're all the same, less important. Beowulf is more important, sorry, bad digression. Yeah, so it, it's it's okay, I read it, I just happened to be, like, dating a girl who had to read it for school, and I, I just read, like, read it with her, and I, I didn't even know anything about Beowulf, just like 20 years ago. And um, it was, you know, it's it's a modern it's like a, it's a clever he does a cleverness. You know, he's like, oh, well, what if like we humanize, you know, the the monster and yada, yada, yada. So I'm all I'm all for literature that's derivative of Beowulf. I think that's awesome. But it's just, you know, maybe we could make it you know, not Jewish, not like <laughs> anti heroic. It's you know? not it's not really that Jewish. It's it's very uh, I mean, he 
obviously he's an academic like English major type. So he was raised in a Judaizing culture. Um, he, you know, as our culture, you know, so he wrote his education occurred probably in the fifties and sixties um, as the, the switch was starting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he, um, he had a spouse that was Rosenberg, uh, mm-hmm. Lizbeth, his second wife. And uh, fun fact, she played the Babka lady in Seinfeld. I don't know if you know what that is. Mm, no. Jerry is waiting to get, a, uh, I think, a chocolate babka to take to a party. And there's okay. one left. And this old Yenta, it has the, you know, it's like a deli. So you have a number and she has the next number. And so she's going to buy it. And, and Jerry Seinfeld is like, I really need this. Look, I'll give you like 10 times what it's worth. And she just won't give it to him. So he steals it from her <laughs> and runs away to like give it to this family of that he's visiting. It's like his girlfriend's parents or something. And then, of course, the same Jewish woman, because they're all related, right? She shows up later and she's like, where do I know you from? And he's like, has to be on edge because he stole a loaf of bread from her. Uh-huh. OK, so that is the wife of the dude that wrote Grendel. The second wife. Yes. Uh-huh. So he's rolling around in that world of New York Jews and novelists and and that stuff. Yes. But he himself was not Jewish. And I the Grendel, it was very. It, it 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 felt like start. It felt like a, a non-Jewish but still kind of degenerate s- sort of like, well, what if the things that we think are good aren't actually good? Maybe we should rethink this. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do a, a derivative work off of Beowulf, why couldn't you give me a uh, the story of the 50 years of Beowulf's reign, like reconstruct the and use imaginatively reconstruct Beowulf from uh, the death of Grendel's mother until the dragon and, or give the story of uh, Wiglaf, the Thane that fights with Beowulf against the dragon and, and his you know trials and travails after uh, Beowulf's death. I mean, there's like all kinds of derivative stuff you could do that would still be heroic and awesome. It's just what I'm saying. And I, I, that would what, where are the Nobel laureates writing these things? What in, instead they're writing uh, this uh, you know derivative trash that's gay and yeah, oh yeah oh yeah well there's, like, there's, there's just no, so much so much being left that's there's not, no percentage in that stuff. Uh, <laughs> um, Nobody cares about art for art's sake. They only care about the money. Uh, so Beowulf, as you said, he 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 says, I'll fight your monster for you. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff, like even when they land um, and we can just go over maybe or when the Geats, when the Geats land in Denmark, yeah, Dane land. What, yeah, whatever we call it. Yeah. And there's a guard, you know, on the coast and he challenges them and they have a little back and forth. Uh, and it's just interesting. Um, it's interesting. It's actually really interesting the way that Benjamin Bagby guy reads it or says it in old English because uh, the guard is like, I, you know, who are you? I can't just let any armed people come. And then he sort of stops and he looks and is amazed at Beowulf is like really big. It's like in awe at the size of the lad. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it is sort of interesting to think that, you know, you're reading this poem from 800 describing the world of circa 500 or 550 or something. And, that they have a coast guard like they have this society is developed enough. They've organized a meat hall and then they have regular patrols of the coast to look out for raiders. So it's not as you know, there is a certain amount of organization here. 
Yeah. So if somebody wants to go on the map, Beowulf probably sailed mm, a little bit south of modern day Gothenburg, like, you know, 50 miles south of there, something like that. Something in on uh, from the west coast of Sweden, probably s- a little southern and down towards Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. Um, you said, or was it let? How do you pronounce Lej Lera Lejra? L e j r e Denmark. Oh, I think that's the current. Lera. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's the current town where the supposed Hirat uh bar- barrows were unearthed uh-huh. um there were ba- there was it was only like 20 years ago i think when these things oh really were, they just they discovered like archaeological remains there that they think could be yes yeah there's an off. area yeah it's like about 20 miles or so from den uh from copenhagen and it's if you if you go on the map and look at it and look where this place is letteria or whatever uh yeah they found like eight they excavated eight halls and one of them was clearly the oldest and looked like it was probably from that time 500 or so. And it had stuff in it, food remains and gold objects and bronze, all kinds of things. And yeah, they said, well, this, you know, this could very well be Kirat. Um, and if you look at the map, it's also possible that somebody could pretty easily sail in about a day from the Southwest coast of Sweden to the northern-ish coast of Denmark, and then mm-hmm. in less than a day's ride on horseback get to this place. So it's all physically possible uh-huh. to be the historical locations. Um, and, by, and by the way, there's a barrow called Skulunda. Right, I guess it's Swedish, so it would be Hjelunda. Uh, it might be the burial site of uh, Beowulf himself. Is it like uh-huh. a one? Of, I'm imagining one of those sort of hills, like the ones that are in old Uppsala, just a, a big hill that's uh, like a, clearly a, a man-made mound. Yes, yeah, and th- it has not been excavated, so there may be a ship in there with a bunch of gold and stuff. Wait, why has it not been excavated? Uh, I didn't look into that too much. I just when I was just jotting down all of these, you know, historical. This is the potential site of this, that, and the other. Yeah, as far as as far as I could tell, this the Skalunda Barrow is unexcavated. Well, because um, I remember, so I've been to Uppsala like five or six years ago, and it's the Uppsala is this town about an hour or so north of Stockholm, and it's the <laughs> old capital of Sweden. And then outside of Uppsala proper, there's this place called Gamla Uppsala, which is old Uppsala, and it's like the ancient meeting place of the Swedes. And they've got this series of mounds uh, that are burials of ancient Swedish kings. And I think one, one of them has been excavated and was the burial of one of the kings of the Swedes who was a contemporary of Beowulf and who is mentioned in the poem. Um, uh, I'll, I'll pull his name up in a second. And then the but uh, the, I remember from the museum there they said that they hadn't excavated a lot most of the hills or they hadn't excavated or attempted to excavate in in like a hundred years, um because they wanted to preserve it for what it is, uh which is like annoying and strange to me but I mean I guess given the political situation in Sweden uh the unfortunate 
Somali menace means it's probably a good thing. They should just leave that stuff buried and, you know. It's an interesting it's an interesting uh, strategy there. Hopefully they don't uh, pave it over like Auschwitz. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, oh, there's no, there's nothing. Why not? There. Why not? Yeah, it's, it's the uh, the king is uh, Ed Giz is the semi legendary king of Sweden mentioned in Beowulf, who they're not a hundred percent, but like ninety percent sure is buried in one of these mounds at at Uppsala. Yeah, I, they should at least do that um, echo, you know, that like deep sonic imaging to see yeah. if they, I, I, maybe they have, I, I don't know. But yeah, it's, in, well, you know, being in Sweden, the the kind of, there's a very like, uh, we don't want to cut down any more of the forests, like we, you know, a, pres, uh, a conservationist instinct. And I think that this falls under. Yeah, yeah. But Beowulf himself would, in being eager for fame, would want, you know, would want his grave to be dug up and then re and then, you know, everything examined and photographed and then to be reburied so that his fame could be even more eternal, you would think. Well, maybe there will be a time shortly in the future when uh, brave Swedes, you know, retake the land and reclaim their uh, their heritage, their birthrights here including any and all artifacts. But uh, also, you know, Grendel's mother attempts to stab Beowulf and is unable to because he has this chainmail from a famous blacksmith. I forget his name, but he's in. Oh, order. it's um, Wayland, the smith. Yeah. And there's and a whole story behind that, too. Yeah. Wayland, yeah, the he's smith. featured. He's captured. He's a, the, the best smith. And then he's captured and made a slave and he's hamstrung which mm -hmm. means your hamstring is cut and so he can't walk um but then he takes revenge and it's really dark and 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 uh quite quite dark he takes revenge on the guy who captured him by i think he kills the guy and then he rapes his daughter or maybe rapes the daughter in front of the guy and then runs away it's really bad um but yeah Wayland the smith is the like Hephaestus of the ancient Nordics. Uh, well, I mean, nor Northerners are Germanics uh, are very much again. I mean, very disgusted by any hint of uh, bodily deformity. I mean, and this is you notice this throughout like Germanic culture. You know, like the idea of circumcision is just like disgusting, and and they recoil at like any any sort of human deformity. So. There, there's one passage, actually, there's one event that is the closest thing to kind of Semitic in the whole in the poem, which is Unferth, when he tries to talk down Beowulf, uh, insult him mm -hmm. when he first gets there and they're drinking mead. He says, like, oh, Beowulf, aren't you the guy who had the swimming competition and lost? Do you remember that part? Yeah. So it was when Beowulf was really young, he had a friend and they challenged each other to swim some, I guess, across maybe from the coast of Sweden to Denmark. It was a it was like a seven day swimming thing in full armor and everything with swords. Right. Carrying so because there's monsters. That's another thing. Uh, there's a lot of symbolism, I think, that what's going on is Beowulf and these people are sort of getting rid of the old gods. And this is also heightened with the, syncret the Christian syncretism. 
they're sort of c- cleansing the land of the old gods. Like wherever they go, like when when he's doing the swimming competition, there's just sea monsters. And so he has to kill them. And he loses the he doesn't finish the swimming competition first. But he says it's because I was killing all these sea monsters. And now there's no sea monsters in that entire part of the ocean, Unferth. And the guy's kind of, you know, it's like a he claps back, if you will. Uh-huh. Um, because Unferth is ba- he's like trying to be Hrothgar's Hrothgar's uh, top guy, and he says, "Oh, you can't help us, you know, with Grendel and Beowulf's like I bet you can." And then he says, "Well, why are you even, why are you even talking to me? Like you haven't been able to serve your king and fight Grendel, and you're here insulting me." Um, yeah, that's an interesting. I, you could read that as a bit Jewy, but I, I don't. I think that's just sort of normal. Uh, it's it's normal within the within the story, right? Because the thanes of Hrothgar have failed to protect the, his house, his his hall, and so of course they're going to be resentful if some guy shows up and starts talking trash about how he's going. He starts boasting that he's going to be the one to protect the hall from Grendel. I mean, yeah, it is. It is very feminine. It's a, it's a shit test that he's giving Beowulf. Like, oh, you're just not good enough. Aha, uh-huh. my my lord doesn't has no need of you. Maybe you he's should also go, drunk. Your services aren't wanted here, Beowulf. Yeah, yeah. But then he does come around. So after after Beowulf proves himself with Grendel, he he comes around and he's the one that actually gives him the sword to go after Grendel's mother, mm-hmm. which has a name. It's a famous blade. It's like Froning. Uh, Crony, yeah, it has one of those raw sounds. Uh, that sword doesn't work. So he chases after Grendel's mom. He gets dragged down by more sea monsters that he has to either fight off or kill. He ends up in her grotto where um, Grendel's dead body is. And they fight. And Grendel's mom, for whatever reason, is actually more, a little bit more formidable. Uh, they're kind of like matched 50-50 for strength and Grendel's mom almost stabs him, but because of his Wayland brand armor, it deflects her dagger. And then he, his blade does not work against her, but then on the wall is an ancient giant crafted blade, which I guess has some magical properties and he's able to penetrate her with that. And he beheads her. And he also beheads Grendel and takes both of the heads back to, uh, Herat. And after he beheads both of them, the blade disappears. So he just has the hilt. I think there is a lot of symbolism there where things are just fading. And to get a little bit back to Tolkien, if you understand that this was extremely influential and then you look at Lord of the Rings, there's a sense in the entire books of Lord of the Rings and the whole vibe of it is that things are fading from the earth that the old ways are fading, the old God, you know, the old, the elves are going, are in the process of leaving man is taking over or even man has fallen and sort of reached a peak before things are fading. So in Beowulf, there's this pervasive melancholy. Um, I think there's, I think I even wrote down the, uh, old English word, um, uh, morning mind which is like the the tone of it. Um, there's even parts where when when they first show up at Herat or when it's being described as this great hall, uh, the poet says, 
they did not know that it was would be burned. So he references it being destroyed like a hundred years in the future, not by Grendel, but by just a conventional war, which uh-huh. in fact happened um, in other stories. So there's this melancholy weaved throughout the whole work about how there's these monsters that are existential threats, but as Beowulf is killing them, it's kind of killing like the magic of the land uh, in the same sense as in Tolkien's works. There's this idea that like the Lord of the Rings is something that could have happened like a hundred thousand years ago, but by the, you know, the elves leaving and by killing all of the monsters and Sauron and all of that, we've magic has been abolished from the land. And now we have, you know, technological human civilization, so it almost has that kind of a sense, like the blade that he used, the giant crafted blade he used to kill the monsters disintegrates in his hands. And he's just left with the hilt because now that those monsters are gone, the weapon, too, is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, even even that uh, that wheat, that corn mythology, um, I don't know if you remember from Lord of the Rings, but, you know, the elves are leaving towards I've the never, end. I've never read Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Because I'm not a nerd. <laughs> and you haven't seen the movies? Uh, I think I saw the movies once each. So I so, vaguely, yeah, vaguely I know this, but well, of course, yeah, have to fill me in. So the uh, the obvious, the obvious, and and this gets to the third battle, but the dragon with the the gold horde that that occurs in the Hobbit. He just lifts that fully and completely. Yeah. Um, but then there's less there's less obvious, like the whole the Mernende Mon, the whole melancholy or mourning mood of an earth. Oh, also Middle Earth. A lot of Old Norse and Old English poetry refers to their land as right, Middle that, Earth. That is the standard expression, I think, in Old Norse. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of this stuff is just directly lifted. Uh, and Tolkien was. A very, I mean, he wasn't just a scholar. In addition to being, he, there's th- there's things that I don't agree with him on. Um, I I think he was kind of a, a he had some Christian philo-Semitism, but he was kind of an amazing person because just to write those fantasy books by themselves would be an amazing career. Uh, in addition to that, he was a professor of Anglo-Saxon at Oxford. Mm-hmm. So it's like. You know, Oxford is is like, you know, the preeminent university in England and you're a professor of old English in. So it's like the most competitive job you could imagine. Right. Like everybody wants to teach Anglo-Saxon at Oxford. Anybody can teach Anglo-Saxon at like Illinois State. Right. <laughs> uh, you can imagine. Um, and. There's a lot of digressions in Tolkien's work, like uh, early on in Lord of the Rings, which I don't think they even have in the movie. But there's this Tom Bombadil digression where they have a sort of a mission to Frodo to get to meet up with Gandalf at the Prancing Pony. And they just go off and hang out with this other guy for pages and pages and pages. And a lot of people don't get it. And it doesn't really make sense. But when you read Beowulf, there's a lot of digressions. I don't know if you noticed that, like where. There's action, and then the poet will just be like, oh, by the way. Yeah, for sure. Uh, did you know about this lineage? Or <laughs> did you know that uh, this, uh, like when Beowulf, after he 
has all of this glory and he he goes back to Hugelac, his king, uh, he tells him the story and he, the, it, it goes on digressions of, I think a, there's a bard or a chope playing that reciting a poem about other events in that right, celebration. Right. There's, it's one of those things like in Shakespeare where they have the play within the play. They have the chope within the, sh- within the <laughs> oral recited poetry. Yeah. And that's when, um, that's when they they get into that because uh, after after those events that's when there's the Phrygian raids when Hugh Jalak is killed and I think also his son and that's when Beowulf eventually becomes king he turns down so Beowulf turns down Hrothgar's offer to maybe be an adopted son so Hrothgar makes that offer in addition to all the gifts and then Hugh Jalak his um his wife is it on the hour yeah i forget on it so they their sons are very young and they're worried that because at that time if there was a powerful rival you could be worried he's just going to straight up kill your children when you're gone to take the throne for himself so she's like well maybe you should become you know the king like the king instead of our children or whatever and he just says no beowulf is very much just concerned he's he's like a a jock, I guess. Um, however, uh, one thing that I, that I was reading about this that was interesting is there's some scholars that claim that, that this isn't literature because it doesn't display much theory of mind. Did you come across that? Um, that sounds retarded, but no, please enlighten me. Uh, this isn't so, literature because it doesn't give a theory of the mind. But that it doesn't use. So the idea is like, for example, Africans don't have theory of mind. Like if you like an African story doesn't have a I know that, you know, that I know. I see. It just has like a the snake was danger. So we kill snake. It, it doesn't have like the snake was afraid of us because it knew that we fear the snake. So it did. The, you know what I mean? Like that kind of levels of abstract. And there so are you people, need to. It, well, OK. Does it mean that that the book uh or the poem give, says this character thinks that this character is about to do this therefore he does this yeah so that would be like three two or three layers but this yeah. poem actually there's a point where well i they, I, I contest that 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 I mean, that's artless like you don't need the poet doesn't need to say Beowulf thought that Grendel thought X. It can the poet can just say Grendel was about to do X and Beowulf did Y. I mean, I, I don't see how that has any bearing on the literary quality. That sounds like well, it's Jewish... because before it, it's because before the Beowulf was respected, it was and, and really before Tolkien wrote his essay, The Monsters and the Critics, it was considered gauche. Like monsters were considered. That's another thing that Tolkien brought into popular culture is monsters it, they were embarrassing to use like the 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 literary criticism before pre-tolkien of beowulf was oh this is an interesting piece of historical literature we can learn a lot about the time period and the politics but the monsters are corny like that's what people said um and and tolkien's point was you guys are totally wrong the monsters is what makes it timeless and epic 
Yeah, and, this sounds like some early 20th century bullshit, like cynical. Yes. Oh, well, uh, yeah, monsters. Oh, that's, uh, uh, mm, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I look at, I would put Beowulf next to anything, any production of Walt Whitman and judge Beowulf to be better. <laughs> so, I mean, these late, late 19th, early 20th century people uh, didn't always have the best taste. Exactly. And that's really what, um, if anybody wants to read Tolkien's The Monsters and the Critics, it's an essay that you could just get a PDF of. Uh, he lays out why he thinks Beowulf criticism is essentially all wrong until, <laughs> until his <laughs> entry. Okay, nice. Um, but there's a point when Beowulf is, so he, he, does, he kills Grendel and Grendel's mom, goes back, tells the story to his king, Hugh Jalak. And also, so, you know, of course, at this time, news is very is is at a premium. So he's also speaking of the political situation. They ask him, oh, you know, what's going on with Hrothgar and the Danes? And he get, tells a very complex story that Hrothgar was having a feud with some other peoples that I can't even remember. But they were going to fight and then he married his daughter off to their king. And they had been fighting. So it was a peace, you know, a marriage for peace. And Beowulf says, I don't think this is going to work because, you know, uh, Hrothgar thinks that, you know, her presence there is going to cause that king to feel close to me and yada, yada. But what his thanes are going to see, because back then when you killed somebody in battle, you took their armor and stuff. So what his thanes are going to see. Yeah, it's pretty standard stuff, you know, kill, kill them, <laughs> strip the armor. Absolutely. That's why like you put on their death clothes, clothes. You obtain their power. Yeah, there can only be one. Uh, so she's going to have an honor guard, this princess that's married off to this other competing king to Hrothgar, this other tribe. And her honor guard is going to be wearing some of the gear that was taken from men that are related to the men in the same mead hall where they're all hanging out. So imagine like, you know, a girl that has bodyguards and their suits and pistols or whatever are taken from the bodyguards that, you know, you're having these people over and some of your friends were killed in a skirmish between these two groups and they show up wearing yeah. this stuff. It'll be like, so he, one yeah, day so he we'll explains be wearing, this. All of us uh, will be wearing uh, FBI windbreakers everywhere. <laughs> Yeah. When we when we come to make peace with the system, we'll have all <laughs> just a little little flecks of blood on the gear. Uh, um, so so it get, it's and the reason why I'm bringing this up is it displays like six or or seven layers of theory of mind in within Beowulf because he's not just saying, you know, this uh, this marriage is not going to actually stop them from fighting. He's saying huge lack or Hrothgar thinks this is going to happen. But what's going to happen in the minds of this other tribesmen is they're going to see their slain comrades, the gear on these formerly enemies that are now their new queen's honor guard. And they're going to be pissed off about that and start fights in the meat hall. And not only, and Beowulf is telling that, so that's all happening. And then Beowulf is saying I, that he thinks that's what's going to happen. So he's projecting this future. So anyway, the point is, for many, many years, decades, 
uh, after this, the Beowulf manuscript was, you know, rediscovered in the what 1800s and started to be studied. People thought it was this like knuckle dragging thing that's just seven, useful. It was the 1780s, I think it was, uh, when they first kind of came across it again and right noticed its quality. And they started translating it in the early 1800s, so like you know, 1810s. Yeah, so they thought it was just kind of a stupid uh, thing, but it's actually if you understand which takes some uh, more than one reading but if you understand what's going on there's a lot of complex uh themes and um yeah so it's it's definitely intelligent i think the in terms of the the quality of it i i think the thing that really holds it back a little bit is some of the intrusive uh christian syncretism mm-hmm. and uh, i don't know how much that I mean, there's there's parts that are sort of outright um, inconsistent, where, for example, Hrothgar, his men to try to deal with the. uh, The Grendel situation, they pray to pagan gods. And the poet says they don't know about the Lord, but then later on, Beowulf is talking to them in a monotheistic way. And it's just a little inconsistent. Um, I don't know how much. Yeah, I mean, with with any. Any epic poetry, you should expect that uh, because these, this is coming from a poetic tradition. So certain certain story, it's like a bunch of different stories woven together and that are slightly variable. So the the audience is expecting to hear certain things said, and so that it leads to inconsistencies sometimes when the poet puts it together. It almost always leads to inconsistencies. You can find inconsistencies in, in any you know good true epic poem. Uh, just because they're derived from different sources and, and different stories and that they have to be uh, woven together and the, the poet has to give the audience what they're expecting, um, but at the same time has to try to make the, the new story he's creating or the compiled story uh, consistent. Well, I would say in this case, so the actual written manuscript, right, was written on, uh, what's it, like lambskin? Uh, yeah. I think they, they didn't even have paper at the time. So my theory is that writing was expensive. This was probably a Christian monk. And he he was like, look, there's this um, folktale story that's partially historical and it's pagan. But he, so he had to justify it to the church because it was expensive. They had to kill probably like a dozen animals to get the skin uh, to comprise this manuscript so they did um have you ever read the essays like uh the plundering or despoiling egyptian gold or like what 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 does ingold have to do with christ or what does athens have to do with jerusalem those rhetoric so there's a whole uh christian apologetic tradition of of asking like what is the role of christ in culture or should we concern ourselves with culture like I think Paul first asked it of uh, Athens. So he, he was basically like, what what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? Okay. And then that was echoed later. Um, some different Tertullian. Uh, and then Alcuin, who was an Anglo, Anglo-Saxon, Christ, early Anglo-Saxon Christian, because people would have these stories like of Ingild. And he's like, well, what what do why do we need this anymore? Because we have the truth of Christ now. And then there were dissenters. So there's one camp that's like, we don't need Greek philosophy 
we don't need pagan mythology. We don't need this art right. and, and stuff because it's it's heretical. And then there's another camp that, you know, like Thomas Aquinas types who basically just stole Greek philosophy uh, for the purposes of his Catholic philosophy, of his theology. Um, and so I think what's happening in Beowulf is this guy, this poet, is going to his church and he's like, look, I, I want to write this down and I can make this about like good pagans. Because Beowulf is presented as like kind of understanding about like the one Lord. You know, there's all these passages where he's like God and the almighty or there's a lot of different terms he uses. And the, the him, Beowulf from the Geats is sort of this monotheistic character, whereas the Danes are doing this pagan worship and it's not working to get rid of Grendel. So it's kind of like. Hey, look, you know, these people were ignorant, but uh, we have this good pagan coming in and kind of cleaning up the place. Uh, I think that's why there's all this. Obviously, additional material that wouldn't have been in the original. Um, and it's basically under the auspices of like plundering Egyptian gold, the the concept that the Jews, when they were leaving Egypt, they took all this gold from Egyptians and they used it to craft their uh whatever in the desert um, tabernacle items. And so this poet is of the tradition that they should be using uh, non-Christian cultural stories and possibly philosophy or whatever towards Christian ends. So you can connect with the folk by using a folk tale and then adding a Christian layer onto it. Well, you know, the other thing, you know, uh, the other thing to keep in mind, too, with like Old English writing and writing in Old English is that Alfred the Great in the late 800s advocated for education in English and use of English as a literary language. So it was sort of unusual. Uh, England was unusual because the other European countries didn't really have a literary tradition this early on, as early as English did. Uh, there's not really anything. There's very there's much more written and preserved from old English from say the eight or nine hundreds than there is in old German uh, or old French. There's well, maybe not old French, but certainly old German. I mean, there's, there's much shorter works in old German. Uh, and then like your, your Norse mythology and stories really only come from like 12, 1300s uh, from Iceland. So, uh, and then there's really nothing in Italian until uh, Dante so, you know, the, like, I think I, I, I mean, I, I don't know if there was a separate stage of development where Beowulf was was being recited more or less in its final form uh, for a century or two before it was written down. Or if the 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 the, the work that we have is mainly composed in in on parchment uh, from a seri from a bunch of other stories that were floating around. But uh, to me, it seems more likely that it was the former case, that it was at least for a while being recited as more or less as we have it uh, on parchment and that the monk just recorded what was done. And I would I would say or what was being recited at, uh, you know, at court or in um, in oral performances. Uh, and then I just I I would I would attribute that primarily to the, the re retaining of some of these older elements
elements that aren't really consistent. Because if it was purely the case that Beowulf was written down as a literary work, I think the author would have been uh, better about consistency and would have like ironed out some of those uh, those things that you mentioned. And he would have if he was just writing for a, a audience to read it, a Christian audience to read it and to understand the old like pagan mentality, but without ad- seeming to advocate for paganism, he would, uh, you know, really iron that out. Well, yeah, I what I mean to say is. I think he wanted to write down this story because it was a story that was being told by bards and he saw a promise in it. And I think he had to justify it to superiors is, is really what I think. And I think his justification was, well, look, I can add, I could just add stuff about the monotheistic Christian God implied in this ancient work to kind of show it as like a, a pre, I think, you know, like a Noahkite, like the good. Yeah, I mean, I would would imagine, though, that like a lot of these bards. As their craft was sort of dying out and as Christianity was becoming more prominent, they must have just started to insert some of the Christian stuff into it almost as a matter of habit. I mean, talk adding God in to a poem isn't that difficult, especially when it's alternating between the concept of God and the concept of fate as it does in Beowulf. So like in Beowulf. They often yeah, mention yeah, God. Yeah. The idea of God, uh, like victory is attributed to God, but when something bad happens, it's attributed to fate or to an accident or to treachery or something. And it's mm-hmm. like outside of God's control because God brings victory. Um, so God is like given this positive connotation. So, I, I mean, you could imagine an earlier form of the poem where all of the references to God are simply references to fate. Or Odin. Or, yeah, sure. Or Odin. Like, instead of like the Almighty Father, it might have just been the All Father. Yeah, yeah. But there, there are sections, like the section where he kind of, and Tolkien points this out because he says that in the Old English, it's actually jarringly different. The section when it, the poet is kind of scolding Hrothgar and his men for trying to, to sin. Yes, yeah, correct. Part, yeah, it was like line 600 or something like that. Yeah, it's 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 clearly like a, a finger wagging addition. Um, if if not all of the other mentions, uh, that certainly at least is. Um, before I forget, though, I wanted to, I do have a few things I wanted to hit. Uh, Hurat, okay, in this economy, as an early example of Germanic national socialism. <laughs> uh, yeah, cool. I'll I'll accept it. Because the economy we were talking about, it's basically the everybody works for the tribe and there's one leader that embodies the will of the tribe. You know, he's sort of like the head of the tribe. And he is good. And this is explicitly stated, like um, uh, Hrothgar says this uh, to Beowulf. And I think Hugelak also says this, which is that uh, and there's a bad king that doesn't that's told spoken of that does not do this which is spread around your wealth don't you have to give treasure to your things you have to be you know they will be loyal to you to the extent that you're good to them and have this kind of you know basically like not capitalist type situation yeah don't uh, be like agamemnon and just like hog all the best stuff and then just like treat you know your top thane achilles like shit 
exactly. It's a similar, similar thing, right? Yeah, and yeah, Hurat is because Hrothgar builds it as a place. It's like as a meeting place for everybody because he already has. He probably already has a nice place to be. You know, this is like a place for everybody. It's a, it's a public. It's not private. Um, which is why I see some socialism in it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, it's you've got to uh, solidify the Manor Boond. That's what it is. Yeah, having some place to hang out and, and get drunk and talk trash, which is really all they do. Yes. Well, I mean, they also raids. fight people, but you see, like, when they stop fighting people, that's when they have the Grendel problem. Um, when they're when they're only drinking and talking trash and not fighting people. Right. And and so Hrothgar is he's often referred to as a ring giver or the giver of rings. Um, and I think even in The Wanderer or another old English poem, there's even a line, Lord of rings or something like that, which I think is oh, no, where... there's, there's that in, there's that in Beowulf too. I think when he's swimming down to meet Grendel's mother, he's called Lord of those rings referring to his, uh, his chain mail. Oh, okay. I was thinking of the rings that are given as gifts by the King, but yeah, right. right. But slightly different. Yeah. But so I think that's yeah, obviously Tolkien got this from this and the concept that Tolkien took, he put a dark spin on it. So in, in the Norse and old English sense, giving, rings to your thanes keeps them loyal to you so you could see it as a kind of control but it's like a give and take you know whereas in lord of the rings it's like an evil thing where sauron gives the dwarves and the elves and the men these rings that secretly allow him to exert control over them even though he's not their king he's their enemy but he tricks them into take it's like an it's like an enemy king you know, tricking you into accepting his gifts that have like a magical ability to make you subservient to him. Um, so it's like, in other words, you shouldn't really be, be accepting gifts from, from your enemy because it, there's a relationship there when somebody is like a ring giver and yeah. you're loyal to, there's a, that, that is a relationship that's good. And you could, uh, that could be a dark relationship when an enemy is seeming to give you gifts. Um, the, the other yeah. thing, uh, did you read the wanderer? Have you ever read that? The no. old English. Yeah. That's one of those, like, it's, it's a poem about a soldier who is coming back from a war and his country's gone. So all of his comrades are slain and his home base is gone. This King is gone and he, he's like totally, dep- he has nowhere to go. Cause you can imagine back then, uh, uh-huh. you know, your persona non grata and it has a uh you know the ubisunt uh motif, motif like where where is it or where where, yeah, are, where they? are they yeah. um so i think that these types of things like the beowulf has a little bit of it's it's like germanic ubisunt because it's like where are the heroes you know that such and such and thus and so well, you know, that's, that's very similar to uh, the first poem in, in Old German or like the first big heroic poem in Old German is a very short poem called uh, the Hildebrandeslied. And it's about the king or the hero Hildebrand who comes back to his homeland after serving with Theodoric the Goth for his whole career. And he's challenged by another warrior um, who identifies himself as the son of Hildebrand. And Hildebrand identifies himself and says, well, well, we don't need to fight. I'm your father. And the son 
doesn't believe him, thinks he's an imposter. And so they have to fight. And then the poem breaks off. We don't have the results of the poem, but it's strongly suspected or, or almost certain that Hildebrand, the father, kills his son. And, you know, that's the ultimate tragedy is because, you know, at least if, if he has to fight for honor, so he has to kill his son. But at the same time, you know, in the pagan uh, world, you have to fight and you have to fight hard and win. And he does win. But in so doing, he kills his son. And so it's sort of the same idea of like, yeah, the uh, hero returning from uh, being away from for a long time. And then uh, maybe even more than just Ubisunt. But, mm-hmm. you know, here's your son and you killed him. Yeah, that's the that's the one sin that is clearly preserved in the Bay in the pagan section of Beowulf, because when he dies, when Beowulf, um, I guess we didn't really go over the dragon part. So he becomes king because, as you mentioned, the Frisian raids, his king, Hugelac, is killed. And then his two of his sons, his two sons die. He's crowned king for 50 years. And the poem just jumps forward. And then just like in. The Hobbit with uh, Bilbo Baggins, there is a slave who escapes and steals a golden cup from the dragon's hoard. Just one thing he steals. I think he needs mm-hmm. to go back and get more stuff, but he steals one thing. And the dragon wakes up and immediately notices, as dragons do, and he just starts well, like punishing everybody, you know, just destroying the, uh, the whole Gitish civilization. And Beowulf is uh, apprised of this and he says, "Okay, well, I'm going to do my thing again. I'm old now. So now he's probably 70 something. Can you imagine he was maybe in his 20s in the beginning? Um, And he gets his thanes around him, but he tells them, you know, I want to fight the dragon on my own. So he goes and he has a shield made out of metal instead of wood so that it won't catch fire. Fights the dragon, withstands the heat. Uh, it's getting pretty bad. Looking like he's not going to be able to do it. And then one of his thanes, Wiglaf, comes to help him. And between the two of them, they're Wiglaf, able to... There's just... <laughs> one is so tempted to make derivations from that. Yeah. Wig yeah, the, yeah, the wig... <laughs> the loyal... The one loyal thane of them all is the uh, the Wignat... And so, yeah, between the two of them, they're able to kind of stab the dragon and then Beowulf gets the killing blow. But he is nicked. Uh, what actually kills him is he's unlike bitten. unlike the coward. Well, unlike the 10 other thanes who prove themselves cowards and like run off into the woods, Wiglaf comes and, and manages to help Beowulf slay the dragon. And then um, the, the cowardly thanes return in shame and Wiglaf upbraids them. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Beowulf is poisoned by the the fangs of the by a bite from the dragon. So it's his poisonous saliva, and he, oh, he yeah, dies. So I, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I have a comment on that, but go ahead. So he dies kind of slowly, and he asks Wiglaf to run down and bring out some of the treasure so he can see it before he dies. He knows he's dying. So Wiglaf does that, and he gets to see some of the treasure. And then one of the last things Beowulf says is. You know, I he says what he did in his life and he said, I never slayed a kin. So that's like 
as you were saying with the father that has to slay his son, it's like, that's the worst thing. And Beowulf kind of lay, it's like, <laughs> you know, you can imagine something. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah, I drank too much and like, I beat my wife and I cheated at dice and whatever, but it's like, but I, I have no kinslayer, you know, that, that was like the one thing that was uh, above all other sins in their world, which I think is, yeah, is notice, good. A good rule. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a good rule to start with. Right. And like, don't kill, don't kill your own family. Um, no more brother wars. Yeah. If you will. You, you'll notice with these Germanic heroes that they, the real Germanic hero, like the Beowulf or the Siegfried, um, or even, you know, Greek, heroes like achilles they have to die by treachery or by poison um or, or some kind of combination thereof right uh like when uh when siegfried is killed in the nibelungen lead he's stabbed or he's he gets a spear from behind in the back from uh hagen which i think is dipped in poison if i'm i feel I like there's so. poison i think there is poison involved yeah um and so yeah for beowulf you know he he di dies fighting a monster but that monster it's not just the violence it's the poison that gets him yeah and and even the sense that he had to be aged before you know like it, his true heroic nature had to be at, sort of subsided in the first place even right you know? and like it's, you know it's it's like Patton said like you know the lot the true soldier would die by the last bullet of the last war. <laughs> because what what more point is there in living if there's no more wars? Well, what, what's the point of being Beowulf? There's no more dragons. Exactly. Which, yes. Uh, Ubi sunt. Where are the dragons? Um, Ubi sunt dracones. So, uh, it, about heroes, um, I was thinking about this a lot early on uh and about there's this sense of like i said of a of a, a world fading and he, and after beowulf dies and wiglaf is berating all of the men that ran away and he's specifically saying when people hear that you didn't help your king and that our king is dead that was a great warrior and leader the swedes are going to come down and take our shit over because they're going to be like, hey, those pussies, their leader died, the one that we were afraid of and was a good leader, and they didn't even help him. So they're like they're just sitting ducks, which is, in fact, historically what happened, because Geatland is now called Jotaland in southern Sweden. And it's this it's Swede Svideland now. It's so, Sweden. yeah, they got they got fucked up. And well, Two things on that. So this uh, Tacitus, the Roman historian in Germania, uh, writes that the Germani, all these Germanic peoples, they they are ashamed if they should if their king should die in battle before them. Uh, if their king dies in battle, that, that it's incumbent upon the retainers to die uh, before the fight is over to show that they were loyal to their king. But uh, with the with the Geats, though, so were the Geats just absorbed into the Swedes or I, I saw it alluded to the possibility that the Swedes or that the Geats were some of the people who moved to England in the migration of the Anglos and the Saxons and the Jutes to England and that some of them were Geats and that that's where 
like that's why this story was preserved in England, because like you would think, you know, there's not a single English character in the whole story. And this is recorded in England. So it's almost like there's some uh, uh, residue here to suggest that a Geetish person or a person descended of Geets had come to England and that had this that's how the story had been preserved. Well, it could have also been brought by Danes. But yeah, I'm sure it was brought it was probably brought to Anglo-Saxon England from Scandinavia in a migration in you know during the time of the great migration. Yes, probably. Yeah, I mean, well, if it was brought by Jutes, for instance, or Jutes, Jutlanders, wouldn't yeah. they have their own stories and their own heroes? Like, why would they tell the story of this Geet Beowulf? And if it was brought by Danes, why would they bring the story of Beowulf, who shows up their king, Hrothgar, or not shows him up, Hrothgar's old, so he can be forgiven for not being a great warrior anymore. And it's, he's, But, like, the story centers around Beowulf. It, it is... Yeah. It seems to be like the national legend of the Geats. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't I mean, I I have no idea and there's no written history about this. I my guess is not that every Geatish person was genocided. They were probably just absorbed into the other populations. And right. I mean, the simplest way to say it is they just didn't survive as a people into nation statehood. So the Danes yeah. have a nation state. The Swedes have a nation. state. You know, all of these peoples their tribal name from their early kings and tribes turned into what is now a modern country and not the Geats. Mm-hmm. So, so it's like, like Virginians. Well, if they no longer survive, they've now been absorbed into the Ameriburger super state. Well, that's a little different because that would be more like if some, <laughs> some of the original colonies were now the name of the United States. Okay. Yeah, true. <laughs> But as far as heroism, so there's this melancholy throughout the whole poem and a sort of like, why does it matter? Like modern people might say, why does this matter? Like, he, you know, he dies in the end and even his people uh, don't don't actually make it. Um, and I could see that, like, you know, Jews kind of seeing this as like the the ultimate fail. Right. Like you, you didn't even you didn't even get rich and, you know, have slaves and whatever. But really. Uh, the Germanic hero is somebody. So the only way to actually achieve, so immortality doesn't really exist, right? The only way to achieve immortality is to do something like Beowulf is to be awesome. Yes. Right. Uh, yeah. this is not, what, this is what we, we all, we preach to people be awesome. You can be like Beowulf. Yeah. Even cause you know, the, 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 the black pilled term, you know, being black pilled, yeah. And then people will take that to mean that nothing is worth doing. The world of Beowulf was a black-pilled world. Yeah. It was not a – there was not a sun on the horizon, you know. There were not better things in view coming along the way. There, there, there was very much a sense, like in Tolkien's work, of that the world was sort of better before they were in some type of decline. Uh so not only is it worth doing the best you can and to do heroic things in a fading world, it's actually especially like if you were in a improving world. Then you're like, that would be, be good. depressing because you couldn't do awesome things. Yeah, no, I feel right. that way. It's especially I, in a fading world. Heroic acts yeah. are immortality. Yeah, because I mean, like people who want to go back to the 1950s. It's that I find them contemptible. I think we all do. 
it's like, oh, well, you want to go back to a happy place where everyone has a uh, wife and kids <laughs> and, uh, you know, a nice suburban house. Loser. <laughs> like, right, right. It's like asking, I want to live Jew world. This is great. I mean, I don't not forever, but like I want to fight Jew world. Yeah, it's it's you, everybody in different ages has different opportunities. But it, when you're in, you know, being black pilled, like seeing things as bad, that's the best time to do good things. When things are good, good things are needed less. It's exactly like people with the whole black pill thing. It's exactly the opposite. This is a this is an excellent point. Very true. And this is the value of the Norse and Anglo-Saxon melancholy, because all you know the wanderer. A lot of these works have this sense, and Tolkien's work has this sense. Tolkien brings a little bit of like the Christian sense into it. That's okay. But the idea that there's a fading world and, and within this setting, there are heroes that are doing the most heroic acts. That's where you want to be. You don't want to be in a place where your level of effort requires like that everything's like nice and set up or something, because that doesn't make any sense. Um, and that's why some of these works may not make sense to modern people you have to have a sociological imagination and it's good to exercise that muscle and to understand that people people were different back then but they weren't that different like if you could go back in time to that time i think that people could get it you know they just have to they would have to see how people could just go oh that everything sucks like that's not in uh, a reason to not continue with whatever they're doing. Like, yeah, everything sucks. Like they didn't have um, central heating, you know, in, in Northern Europe. Like it's, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just <laughs> fucking cold and you just dealt with it. And you know, you're you just got used to being colder. Like I, in the last few weeks it's gotten cold and I've had the, the thermostat down lower than I would otherwise like to. And like, I've, kind of just gotten used to it so you know overall like yeah your base level is lower but as long as you're not dropping like you're something well you get used to it it's fine yeah and it gives you an opportunity monsters there's gonna be yeah and all of that is is an opportunity and beowulf it's like he's hungry for it that's where you want to be you want to be hungry for challenge because what's the alternative i mean it's just there who would write like if you look at this body of work it's different than Greek and Latin work, but it still shares certain things, which is that the the heroes are hungry for glory and they're hungry for challenge. And how could work, poetic work, be created any other way? Right. So it, looking at the world as it is, the hope this this is a a good way for people to understand that not that things being bad is good. But it's an opportunity to make them better. Uh, and th there will be things written about our times. You know, maybe not the same way, but there will be there's still an opportunity to be a hero. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's out there, you know, just like as it, as Achilles says, like immortality is there um, on the shore there or wherever. And you just have to take it. And Beowulf took it, and people yeah. are still speaking his name. Well, and you you got the other thing to think about too is, um, and they this is brought up in Beowulf plenty is you know 
weakness and old age and disease and uh, being crippled. I mean, there's all these horrible things that can happen to you. And, you know, why not make the most of it? Like, what's it's not a big deal if you get killed by a monster when you're in your 30s or your 20s because, you know, it's pretty awesome. And the outcomes, you know, it's, it's that pessimistic melancholy idea that, you know, maybe maybe you'll live to 70 and be in, in good health and have a good life, but probably not. So you might as well just, you know, do something awesome in the meantime. And if you survive, great. If you don't, oh, well. Right. Yeah. And and do something good for your people. And uh, yeah, I mean, don't go kill yourself like there's <laughs> that's right. not like, the, you know, one one could take it that far. Like, oh, maybe I should uh, you know, should I have a cup of coffee or kill myself as I think uh, Camus uh, once said. But uh, yeah, no, have a cup of coffee and, and go fight a monster like. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, that that's about. All the notes I had. I mean, I I did meant I did want to talk about. You mentioned alliterative verse and oh well, yeah. So it, what, for people that don't even know what that means. So would it be <laughs> the the poetry that you see? I mean, you've seen uh, if you've seen Shakespeare, uh, it's usually ten beats per line, alternating stress. Uh, sometimes eleven beats per line uh, with five stress beats. Uh, as iambic pentameter, as it's called, technically. Um, or maybe if you study Greek and Latin, you've seen uh, dactylic hexameter, which is uh, six metrical feet, and each foot has either a long, has either two long syllables or a long and two shorts, or sometimes a long and a, and a short. There's there's certain you know poetic types like this, but the Beowulf verse, the old Germanic verse. Uh, and and uh, it, it's similar to the the verse that's used in Nibelungenlied, although Nibelungenlied does add end rhyme as well as um, as being like in this uh, German, old Germanic verse style. The old Germanic verse style is uh, two half lines separated by a pause called a kaisura, and there is it's it's not exactly iambic. Um, it's fairly complicated uh, where the what the stress pattern is, but there has to be, I think you usually it's two alliterative words in the first, uh, the first foot and then, or in the first half line and then one of the same uh, alliteration in the second half. And that that, that I think it varies. And you can have like just one and one sometimes. Um, so anything B and you know any consonant alliterates with itself, and then any vowel alliterates with any other vowel. Right. So and it's it's interesting because you actually have this not only in Germanic poetry, but in very archaic Latin poetry, there's something called Saturnian verse that looks a lot like this as well. Um, the, the Saturnian verse was not used beyond like the I don't know, third or something century B.C. It was quickly pushed out by the more refined Greek hexameters. But there is it seems like this is like a very old European type of verse of. Uh, two half lines with a, a, a gap in between and, and alliteration rather than end rhyme. Yeah. Uh, uh, the simplest way to put it is that what most modern people, English speakers are familiar with is end rhyme. So, so when a word rhymes, when somebody says that, what they mean is the last syllable, sometimes the last couple syllables, you know, if it's a compound word mm -hmm. kind of sound the same, they rhyme. And usually it's, 
one line so the end of a line of verse will rhyme with the end of the next line you know a a b b or a in a poem it could be a b a b or you know all those kinds of things but with like really modern poetry it's usually the line just following has an end rhyme so just imagine instead of the end of the line rhyming the end of the last word with the end of the last word it's at the beginning of the words rhyme yeah i I don't know. I, not I've always found the... rhyme poetry to be kind of barbaric. I mean, it it sounds clingy in a way. Uh, and I think the ancient Romans and the Greeks thought that, too, because there's no ancient you know, Greek and Roman poetry doesn't rhyme, uh, just like ancient dramatic poetry doesn't rhyme. Rhyme really became a thing in like the 1200s or so for whatever Is it more reason. difficult to rhyme? In I don't know. It's not. No, I don't think so. It's not more difficult to rhyme. Uh, I mean, it depends on the language, uh, depends on the, the meter or whatever. But not you know, there's plenty of rhymes in english uh you you could talk in rhymed couplets in english uh with a, a lot of a certain amount of practice and a certain amount of memorizing of of rhyme words but uh the it, it's worth looking at like this old english poetry just because uh of it is a totally different poetic form and i think a much more elegant poetic form and much more suited to the underlying english language than the sort of poetry you see from you know 16 17 1800s um of course all of this is better than modern poetry so-called free verse which is complete trash and tasteless and utterly garbage right what i get from it is it is uh it's it lends itself to action because instead of the end of a line rhyming and then the end of the next line rhyming so which has a sort of conclusive you know poetry rhyme modern rhymed verse has a sense of sort of like so the emphasis is on the end of the line and it's it's a it's always resolving it's always resolving itself and the most of the time any kind of artistic uh presence is in the tension before the resolution of those lines so there can be the tension within the line itself that's resolved in the rhymes at the end of the line. And then there could be kind of, depending on the skill of the poet, there could be tension built up with the rhythm of whole sections of the poem that's resolved later, you know? And yeah. So to give you, to give you an example, I'll just read a few lines from the, the fight with Grendel. So this is where, or uh, Grendel's mother. So this is where mm-hmm. Beowulf finds the, the big sword that he's going to use to slay Grendel's mother with. Then he saw among the armor, a victory brought, Sorry, this is from uh, the Chickering version, just for background. Then he saw among the armor a victory bright blade made by the giants, an oncracking edge, an honor for its bearer, the best of weapons, but longer and heavier than any other man could have ever carried in the play of war strokes, ornamented, burnished from Wayland's smithy. The bold shielding drew it from its magic scabbard. Savage in battle lust, despairing of life, angrily raised, the shearer of life threads. Swung hard on her throat, broke through the spine, halved the doomed body. She toppled to the ground. The sword was blood wet. The man rejoiced. And there you can right. also see the the um, those couplets, those uh, not couplets, kennings. Those double words that, that uh, Old English poetry is so fond of. Um, we've got war strokes life threads victory bright blade so sometimes it's two adjectives a victory bright blade 
or sometimes it's two nouns or sometimes an adjective and a noun life threads two nouns war strokes right and you can imagine it would sound even better in the original that would have more of those alliterative hits right yeah it's just, um, um right because the this chickering version he he doesn't do the alliteration as much as uh shimas Heaney does um but you get a little bit because he's not having to worry about alliteration you get a bit more of a direct uh translation but you get a little bit more of the the poetic art with Heaney because he, he does emulate that um that alliteration right so what i what i was getting at is that the modern poetry is doesn't have a sense of action to it the way that this does so the emphasis is instead of the emphasis being just on the end of the last word of a line in a sort of resolution building style Mm -hmm. always resolving always resolving this and also greek as well it's always pushing action because the emphasis is on the first word usually the first syllable of the first word and then depending on how many syllables these words are as you said, there's usually an alliterative couplet in the first half. So each line, there's two sections to each line. There's almost like two lines to each line. There's And they're ev- evenly weighted. They're about five syllables. So there'll be an alliterative couplet and then a space. And then in the same line, usually one alliterative match. So there's there's this action that's pushing... The story, the the action is being pushed forward because the emphasis is early rather than late. So it doesn't have this kind of modern poetry is sort of it's relaxing. It builds up tension and then it's relaxing. Whereas this type of poetry, the alliterative verse, it's pushing forward. It, it, it it's like it's never it's it's a it has a sense that there's always action to come. Um, that the words themselves have a sense of action to them. And it just has a totally different uh, effect. And I think I, I like all kinds of, I mean, not modern free verse and like slam poetry or whatever stuff the blacks are doing. But I like all different kinds of poetry. But I think that it's a shame that people don't write in this anymore. And I think and maybe it's time to, you know, revisit some of the because, yeah, the greeks wrote this way not exactly this way but the greeks had as you said not a rhyming verse and they had a a sense of rhythm that was very action oriented uh and i think that that is echoed here and i think that's just worth having i mean it's if people you know if people are oh you know literature is gay poetry is gay like this is not gay yeah i i mean i agree the rhyme poetry often sounds gay and it often is doggerel because it just if it's not very well done uh the rhymed verse gives this uh yeah very clingy effect but um yeah so uh, let's just uh, finish this out i i have you ever seen the movie version of beowulf which the cgi one or yeah the, the most recent one from like 2006 or so i watched some scenes from it for for this podcast and i didn't like it i didn't like what i saw i watched I the I, I watched the grendel fight it was very and it wait is this the one where um grendel's mom is sexy 
Yeah, what's her name? Uh, yes, it's uh, Angelina Jolie. Yeah, right, her. Yeah, I didn't like anything about. I didn't like this. I felt the CGI was. Um, it didn't age well. Like I was watching it, you know, in 2022. It didn't. I didn't see it originally, so I remember seeing ads for it, but I didn't watch it when it was new. And that was actually another reason why I thought the the fight with Grendel's mom and the whole like penetration versus disarming because i thought maybe the makers of that movie trying to make her a seductress were reaching at something that possibly was there in in the literature but maybe not uh-huh. uh but no i didn't watch the whole thing no but i saw i saw i saw the grendel fight scene i saw the grendel's mom scene and i saw some uh, i saw the dragon fight scene i saw i watched well, the, the, i mean the fight scenes are obviously going to be the most cgi heavy scenes but uh, I, I remember I haven't seen it in years. I saw it once when it came out and I saw it once maybe 10 years ago or so. And. I mean, as far as modern movies go, like I was I thought it was pretty good. Uh, and as far as like, I'm. I'm glad to see somebody attempt a modern uh, film version of Beowulf. And it did have, uh, it did, it, they did bring in some of the old elements. I mean, the costumes look pretty real, and uh, you know, it, and it did, it was able to convey some of the sort of magical and like legendary uh, feel of the whole thing. But um, I mean, it's worth watching, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, everybody's white. If you can get over the CGI, yeah. If you don't, yeah. it's Beowulf is like a blonde-haired, blue-eyed. I mean, it's it's definitely not. It's good in that way. Well, it was you know. ju- it was just before everything got really gay, um, and and maybe yeah, like not there was this golden age in the 2000s where we could be racist against Arabs and everything was like more or less uh, normal. <laughs> and then we also had awesome technology, so you could have like a movie like Alexander where they have a a very realistic looking Battle of Gagamala. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, I liked that movie. Uh, there, there was a lot of things that were weird about it, but I've, I've watched it like two or three times. Yeah, the Alexander with, uh, oh, that <laughs> the battle scene, like I, I think I cry every time I watch it. It's like, oh man, uh, this is uh, really just so intense. Uh, <laughs> and it's not yeah. gay, like freaking Saving Private Ryan, where it's like, oh yeah, oh this guy is dying, and like, oh yeah, I killed those crowds. Yeah, it's just like, a, it's a fucking battle scene without a moral. It's a tragic battle scene. It's sad. People die. Uh, it's not like. Yeah. It's not like this propaganda shit that that uh, passes for. You know, yeah. And they and the sure. director really did try to capture the actual like how the battle went, you know, how they were able to win with this. Yeah, I know. It's cool. It's cool because it's not uh, so many modern movies or so many movies in general will just do uh, little little scenes of a battle or something they won't even attempt to give you the overall picture uh and what was it colin farrell right uh no he's the main actor it's uh whatever guy directed he gives you the overall picture of the battle and he shows you overhead um where the and then you're hearing the dialogue about oh left flank is like under under pressure like we have to like wrap this up quick but before it breaks and da, da, da. Mm-hmm. and it, you know i guess it got bad reviews because people were like oh this is so boring i don't care about uh, <laughs> it's like shut up loser like everybody that's that's the drama of it is like is the whole team gonna win the 
the drama isn't for these half wit literary critics. The drama isn't whether the one hero dies or the 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 uh, I don't know the the comic character dies or something. The the drama is is the whole army going to win or not? Right. But anyway, sorry, digression um, on mid two thousands movies. But yeah, the Beowulf movie, I I thought it was all right. Um, I mean, admittedly, I haven't seen it in ten years, so maybe I would change my opinion. But uh, as far as like. It's better than 99% of the stuff out there, which isn't really saying much, but, you know, it's all right. It's certainly better than anything that's going to come out animated these days. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, the, char- the the characters are real. I mean, they're legendary, but they're real legendary, not Jew uh, Hollywood fake legendary. Oh, yeah. Those, char- that, those events really happened. In a way, yes. Yeah, and it's, it's actually Some of true, them are- truer than fact. All right. Well, uh, Roman, thank you for this excellent discussion. Uh, do you have any final thoughts on Beowulf? I mean, uh, any any last takeaways? Um, I why was just people, why should people read this? Uh, this this stuff about the heroism um, and understanding that you know people in bad situations. Yeah, you know, it's 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 moralizing, even though it has a melancholy to it. So it's a it's an example of moralization without a obligatory happy ending. So these mm-hmm. days that's not that doesn't exist. Something is depressing if it has not a happy ending and it doesn't have to be that way. Um, learning about the language and the history. I mean, there's just so many things you can learn from this uh, about the history of our people and. You know, the history of the English language, it's interesting, all the, the, the British Isles and all the migrations that caused that to happen. Yeah, there's a whole I mean, they call it Beowulf studies. There's a whole field of a, a whole corpus of literature written about Beowulf and criticism and, and uh, you know, linking it to other things in history and literature. Um, actually, I'm glad you mentioned the language piece, because if you are interested in old English, uh, I've got a whole stack of books here uh, to recommend. So. First, uh, as far as Old English itself, uh, and if you're interested in Beowulf, like I've been talking, I've been hawking the Howell Chickering book as just the best introduction. It's got a great translation and plenty of supplementary materials. Uh, then if you're just interested in Old English itself, there is some older books like that are fairly common. You can find in used bookstores sometimes um, for fairly cheap or you can get them online fairly cheap. The one from about 100 years ago that's still in use is called Sweet's Anglo-Saxon Reader. Uh, it's a bit harder. It's like if you if you studied Greek and Latin, this is you know a good thing to work with. Um, but if you haven't, it's kind of hard to use. But if you haven't studied any other foreign language and you want to just learn Old English because you're really into English, uh, Cambridge Old English Reader by Richard Marsden is great. It's got uh, it's got excerpts from old english uh writing uh starting with very easy things and then each one is each reading is uh each word is glossed and there's explanations of like how the uh phonology works and how the grammar works Uh, and it's got a wide selection of stuff to read from it's a very very good uh for somebody who is not really well read in languages but uh wants to learn old english it's it's very user-friendly uh and then as far as just the general literature of the north uh i took a uh i took a class at, at school and i i got this book 
we're happy to get this book for the class. It's called Beowulf and Other Stories, a new introduction to Old English, Old Icelandic and Anglo-Norman literatures edited by Richard North and Joe Allard. And this is like a I, I feel like this is written for like English uh, British high school students or college uh, undergraduates because it's written in a, a pretty friendly way and it gives a lot of uh, references to like Tolkien and sort of modern culture, but without being over the top about it, it does get you deep into the material as well uh, and has chapters on all of the, this whole world. Like you were saying earlier, um, or maybe we were saying before the episode, the England, if it before 1066 was in a way culturally much more bound up with Frisia and Denmark and Scandinavia mm -hmm. than it was with France and the rest of Europe. So uh, you before 1100, you've got these three literatures, really. Uh, well, you've got Old English, uh, Old Norse, I guess really just two, Old English, Old Norse, that are very close to each other. And um, and actually, there's a lot of influence of Old Norse on English. Did you Are you aware that our, our pronoun, the word they, isn't even an original Anglo-Saxon word. It's an Old Norse word. Mm. I was looking up different Old English for the, because there used to be like eight of them. I didn't know about they, though. Well, yeah, the, just like in German, there's like a different case endings and different yeah. genders uh, in, in the. But uh, no, the word they uh, is an Old Norse word, because the original Old English word was the same as the word for she. And so she, and just like in German, modern German, Z means both she and they. Uh, and that was that was the case in Old English, and they were only distinguished by the uh, the ending on the verb, right? So you had a singular verb and a plural verb, like in modern German, sie singt, sie singen, she sings, they sing. But when mm -hmm. once Old English lost the the conjugation endings in the verbs, well, then you had to distinguish you know, she and they. And since there are so many Norse speakers around, uh, and so many like English people married to Norse or living in the same community with Norse people, they just started using the Norse word. And they just started using they, them pronouns. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. Or hmm. <laughs> funny, funny. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of other couplets too. Like a lot of all the, most of the English words with ska at the beginning, like sky or skirt or skipper are from old Norse. So we even have doublets like skirt and shirt. Our shirt is the old English word. Skirt is the old Norse word. And they all go back to a. Um, Are they pronounced all with a hard K? E, so in old English, SC is the spelling for the sound sh. So that's mm, why. Yeah. Shop, yeah shield. Yeah. Po poet, right? Is the shop. S-C-O-P. Shop. Or yeah, shielding. Um, so SC in Old English is sh sound, but in Old Norse, SK is ska. So uh, like skip rather than ship. Skipper okay. rather than shipper. Yeah, in Swedish, I guess I don't know when this happened, but sometimes depending on where in the word it is, SKs or just Ks by themselves can have either a sh or a hu. Mm, like, yeah, that's annoying. To shop is K O with an umlaut and P. Oh right, like Kalfen, yeah. But it's pronounced like ship. Okay. Like the K is an S H. Um, and uh, like yeah, there's so I I I guess that's that was an innovation after Old Norse. Probably yeah. 
But anyway, I just brought that up to point out the yeah, the, the cultural and ling- linguistic continuity of, of England with Scandinavia and with Denmark and, and like, you know, the sort of northern coast or the coast of the uh, North Sea there. Um, and that this this book, this Beowulf and other stories gets into all of that. And then the one other thing, uh, so there is a a more advanced book called Beowulf by uh, comp- compiled by a fellow named Kleber. And this is like a real, this is, uh, it is only, it has a poem in Old, Eng- in Old English, no modern translation, but it does have a full glossary of the whole thing and lots of uh, notes uh, explaining the, the language and then lots of uh, literary, explanation of literary criticism in the historical context as well. So even if you're not into, you don't want to le- read it in Old English, you might just pick this up just to get uh, an idea of uh, some of the you know studies around the language. And that it's, I, I got this copy for like three bucks at a, at a used bookstore. So they're, they're out nice. there floating around if you can find them. Uh, I just thought that there was something I didn't write down, but um, another reason to read this uh, that I thought about about a week ago. Um, the thing that our people are missing right now, uh, we have a lot of people. Um, there's a decent amount of competence. If you think about what what made the Jews able to do what they have done, right? What do they maintain? They maintain a literature, a sense of themselves, traditions. They right. read about how they're special. Beowulf and this literature is how we're special. And a lot of people, like I was having an argument with a guy in some Telegram group, and I don't want to. <laughs> not going to name names. I don't want to hash out this argument, but let me just say that his position was something like having your head in the clouds and being an intellectual isn't. Let's say he was saying something like it's not what we need right now. We just need like he was saying like, you know, oh, I work with um, young men in a church and I, I help them be develop into like good men or whatever. And there's that is good and necessary. But. There needs to be a central myth around a people for it to have a sense of itself and to have the will to exist and survive. You can't just be a good person. There's no such thing as an atomized good person. Yeah, you're just a helot at that point. You're if you don't have if you're just a, a hardworking person with no culture whatsoever, no folk tales, no you know, common history with the people around you, then yeah, you might as well just some let let the Jews take you over and tell you what to do. And what's the difference? You're still just a hardworking person. There's no reason. Uh, there's only the only reason to resist that would be perhaps economical. But if there's no economical reason, then, yeah, you might as well just be a slave. Right. And so these ideas, you know, whether it's philosophy, literature, mythology, these are things that bind that they, they you know, ethereally like mimetically they bind the blood and we evolved with them so you it's what you know the the kind of conservative thing if something existed you should understand why it existed before knocking it down you know a bridge or whatever for thousands of years we've existed with these things and we've developed them highly in in more recent centuries but to the idea that a people could evolve with these social structures of these shared myths and then get rid of them, but then keep their cohesion as a people doesn't make sense. It would be like if you knocked out the sense of smell or something, or the sense of taste 
if that happens to people, they have trouble keeping weight on because they don't think to eat. Okay, so it's like they they needed that signal to to make them survive. This the survival instinct is dependent on all these things, and the survival instinct right, of and people. It's, I mean, to uh, to give the counter example too, or the the counter. I mean, is just what do the Jews think is important? Well, the Jews think your culture is important, and destroying your your culture and intellectual tradition and history is important, which is why they produce comic book movies and why they uh, they push things like Beowulf out of the school curriculum. And they've been doing it for years and, and um, replacing it with black literature and Holocaust literature. So like the Jews think it's important. Uh, like, yes, I, I, I do understand like where people who make this argument are coming from. Like, yeah, you don't want to be some nerd who just sits around and reads all the time. That's bad. Don't do that. Uh, don't just read. It's not just good enough to know all this stuff and that let that be that. You have to also be like Beowulf and be heroic and do things that uh, take the risks that create the uh, the political conditions under which your people can thrive. Yeah, it, you need a society where people have these shared myths to produce Beowulfs, to produce heroes. It's it's not just, you know, somebody isn't just born and he's big and strong and then so he's heroic. I mean, there's plenty of big and strong people who are just bumps on a log, you know, um, the all, the things that made Beowulf what he was. Or, you know, an historical personage such as him would be the myths that he grew up, you know, when he was a little boy hearing. It's, yeah. It's and, you know, me. it's like you were I, I didn't realize this. I mean, you were just saying, you know, earlier that Shul Sheffing, that this I mean, I I. You know, I'd read that when I read the poem, but I didn't realize that it's thought and, you know, and that Tolkien provided a pretty good argument for that. This Schuld Sheffing story is actually thousand could be hundreds or thousands of years old. Uh, that's embedded at the in, in the beginning of Beowulf. So this would be the kind of this would be the distance between us and Beowulf might be the distance between Beowulf and Schuld Sheffing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if anyone like Schuld Sheffing even existed. But yeah, it, um exactly yeah so yeah these things have to be kept alive um i I, it's too bad that you know if there's somebody of college age and you're like oh you know i'm you know because college is so gay now and you know people will say oh well you know do engineering or not or do stem or don't go to college kind of thing Mm -hmm. I, i i'd like to add an addendum to that do linguistic studies do study get get into this stuff and do because you can there are probably people this is where you want to be as a nazi because nobody's gonna say oh you can't you can't do critic literary criticism of old english poetry like that's a thing that like libtards will like and you're actually undermining their entire thing by supporting your culture i mean jews would hate that uh, the idea that that people would be flooding into, you know, old Norse or old English studies. Uh, yeah. Imagine that. Well, it's I mean, the opposite of critical studies. Right. I mean, this is also like. And even if you don't go to college, like you can you can do it outside college, you can do it on your own. But it, it does help to have a community of people who are all doing the same thing, because then you have someone to talk about it with. It's hard to just read this by yourself. And, you know, that that's it. I mean, it, culture should be a community thing 
Um, and I think that's what the, the conservative, the typical conservative argument that you just mentioned of uh, just if them, that does follow for, if you presume individualism. You just say, well, uh, you know, everybody's uh, the same or everybody's an individual. And therefore, in your individual interest is to go and study mathematics or study uh, science or technology. Uh, nothing else could possibly matter because those are the things that contribute to the material progress of our civilization. And that's all that matters. So do that. It's like, okay, well, I mean, I'm not obviously like mathematics is very important and, you know, I have to understand mathematics, but like you understand where that's coming from. It's coming from a, a nihilistic materialist point of view, their argument for it. And if you stop thinking nihilistically, materialistically, individualistically, and you start asking yourself, well, how do we build a culture? How do we build a civilization? Well, it's, then it's it follows that you have to do also the cult, the history and the humanities along with the math and science. Right. They're, the conservatives, they're not just nihilist. They're running. They're in perpetual retreat. So I'm saying, why not go on the offensive? Say you don't want to study STEM. You, you Say you're a bright kid. You want to get into school. You know, you're you're just somebody that should be in college, you know, whatever. Yeah. Invade the humanities and, and demand the study of these classical pieces and what, you, you know, go on the offensive. Say these are great. That that alone is a revolutionary act at this point. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's just good to know these things, because whenever some some leftist or some Jew starts saying, uh, oh, well, blah, blah, this really means this. You know, if you have the background uh, on some of these, you know, really fairly basic cultural touchstones like Beowulf, you can say, well, you know, well, actually, Shlomo, have you read it in Old English? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, there is a political utility to uh, to cultural snobbery. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, and say say you read it, read it in Old English. You know, it was it was, wasn't it like illegal to be Jewish in England, like when this language was spoken? <laughs> uh, I don't think that. Yeah, I don't know if there are any Jews in England and Anglo-Saxon times. You know, the big expulsion was uh, under King, say, Henry the second. It was sometime like twelve hundreds or so. Yeah. So it was it was post-Norman conquest, but they got some Jews under the Normans and they got rid of them, but yeah. Yeah, they got Normans and they got Normans. You know, like, uh, say, Norman somethingberg. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Very funny. Okay, well, uh, at the risk of rambling any longer, I will sign off, so thank you, Roman. Vorwärts, vorwärts, mit die hellen Fanfaren. Vorwärts, vorwärts, Jugend kennt keine Gefahren. Deutschland, du wirst leuchten stehen, mögen wir auch untergehen. Vorwärts, vorwärts, schmettern die hellen Fanfaren. Vorwärts, vorwärts, Jugend kennt keine Gefahren. Ist das Ziel auch noch so hoch? Jugend zwingt es doch. Wir marschieren, wir wünschen, da
Wir sind der Zukunft Soldaten, Jugend, Jugend, Träger der kommenden Taten. Ja, durch unsere Fäuste fällt, wer sich uns entgegenstellt. Jugend, Jugend, wir sind der Zukunft Soldaten, Jugend, Jugend, Träger der kommenden Taten. Wir, wir gehören.